Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to jump right into it. We don't got a ton of time today. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if I can be honest, as I am, try to be every week, this passage is just, it's difficult, okay? This is a 3,000-year-old document. And so anybody that walks in a book like Ecclesiastes with just total confidence, uh, it's a challenging book. Now, now the big picture of what the book is saying is clear, but the little details can be a little challenging. But here's where we're going to kind of head. And the challenge, and it's a challenge I think all of us have faced. You've felt this. You've felt this struggle internally, emotionally. You've seen it out in the world. And the question he's going to ask is, there are good people in the world doing good stuff. Why do they die young? Why sometimes are there people, and as they're going out and they're starting a new work and a new venture, and it's really making an impact, it's changing the cities, it's changing the schools, it's making an impact in the hospitals, and then all of a sudden this person has this great dream and this great vision suddenly is taken from us. And the guy we wish would be taken from us, the guy who lives next door, or the jerk, or the person that's just living in prosperity and wickedness, they seem to kind of multiply in their wickedness, but the people who really seem to serve and love others, they seem to be taken from us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is looking out the world and saying, God, this doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense. And he's trying to get his arms around the tragedies in life, and he can't reconcile what happens in people's lives with the goodness of God and the fact that God's in control. He says he's good, but why does this stuff happen? And so what he's going to do is he's going to take us through a journey, and this is a long journey, and you may not find the conclusion is satisfying, and that's okay. Because see, when you're in the middle of pain, you don't need an argument. I think we know this. We need a person. That's why Jesus Christ came as a human being. That is why the Holy Spirit is in us. And so, though the teaching may be helpful, if you're in that place of suffering, you need comfort, you need presence, you need family, you need the body of Christ. You need somebody to take you to lunch. So if if you're near somebody, maybe take them to lunch if things aren't going well. You need community. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes is gonna do is take us down this journey to kind of show us the path that he walked down and the conclusion he came to. And what we're gonna do is we're not gonna read the whole thing. We're just gonna read the conclusion, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In verse 29, this is where he ends, which will take us then to the New Testament and to the good news of the gospel. Here's where he goes. The word of the Lord. He said, see, this is what I found. God made man upright. But see, they have sought out many schemes. Hear this again. God made us in the image of God. He made us upright, but we have sought out many schemes. See, this is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you teach us? Calm my spirit and my emotions, Father, my nerves. Um, and Holy Spirit, would you, would you reveal the truth of who you are, the truth of who our Father is? And I pray for those that are walking through suffering that are Maybe seeing someone they love go through tragedy after tragedy and hurt after hurt and the pain is deep and maybe they're making bad decisions in those places and and we just want to take them and rescue them out. Father, you're the only one that can rescue them. You're the only one who can heal and touch their hearts and so Father, in this place of difficulty, comfort us and help us, Lord, by the power of the Spirit to hear what we need to hear from you to get our hearts and our minds and our thoughts reoriented. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.
So he's gonna tell us in a world where there's a good God and yet life doesn't make sense, here's the conclusion. We have to entrust ourselves to the creator. Now that may not feel really impactful right at this moment. We've gotta entrust ourselves to God. So let's jump into this argument in verse 15 and we're gonna start with this basic struggle that he's having in verse 15. As he looks out at the world, he says, in my vain life, which means in my brief life, doesn't mean meaningless life, but in my vain life, I've seen everything. So I've kind of seen joys, I've seen sorrows, I've seen pleasures, I've seen comfort, I've seen success. But here's one thing I can't get my mind around. There was a righteous man, there is a righteous man, and he perishes in his righteousness. And there was a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. And he's saying, God, it just doesn't make sense. Now, part of the challenge that he has is a deeper problem than we have, because see, he's... He's in this covenant relationship with God. So the writer of Ecclesiastes believes in God. He believes in the promises of the Old Testament. And see, in the Old Testament, if you remember this, you know your 10 commandments, you know your 10, you know your top 10. One of them comes with a promise. And it comes with long life. So kids, listen to me on this one, okay? Honor your father and mother so that it, you may have long days. And so the Old Testament says, if you obey God, if you follow God, in this covenant relationship, he wants to bless you. And one of those blessings is a long life. And so here's the writer of Ecclesiastes. He knows this. He's looking out at life and he's seeing all his buddies and the people who are doing good and they're dying young. And so some people will come to this conclusion, well, maybe they really weren't, you know it, righteous. Job's friends, you ever read that book? Long book. Job's friends come up, Job, Job, listen, there's some sin in your life, bro. Come on now. No one goes through this kind of suffering. Because see, there's, you know, fundamentally, even though we're Christians and we don't believe, I don't know if you know this, we don't believe in karma. But we do. Now, we're not supposed to believe in karma, but we do. Because when something, when something bad happens to somebody that you think deserves it, what do you say? He had it coming. That's not the gospel. Did God give you what you had coming? No. Even those that haven't received him in this life, God has yet not to give us what we have coming. Our God is not a God that just rewards the good and punishes the evil. Otherwise, this guy up front's in trouble because I'm not in the good category. As writer Ecclesiastes said, God made us upright, but who went wrong? It wasn't God, it was me. Because see, I wanna sit in the place of God. And here's what he's gonna to get to. The next verse is a verse all of us can obey. You know, it's a verse that I think we probably should start embroidering on pillows and magnets and putting everywhere. If you notice in verse 16, what does he tell us? Here's the solution, don't be overly righteous. I mean, I got that down. And, and he also goes on, don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So what he's now talking about is the way that people respond to this problem. But he goes on, verse 17, but don't be overly wicked. I mean, don't go that way. Don't be too righteous, but don't, you know, I mean, listen, don't go, don't go on the wicked side. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Okay, what in the world? I mean, what do you do with that? It's like, could you imagine kids coming to you? Dad, it says, don't be overly righteous. That's all I was doing Friday night. You know, I was just being, a, I just sprinkle a little sprinkle of wickedness, not, not, you know, I'm not swimming in wickedness because it says don't be overly righteous, but don't be overly wicked. Well, see, what he's really describing is someone that's wrestling with this 
problem. As he looks out at life and here the good people are dying young and the wicked people are living old, some people are saying, well, those really good people, they're really not good. And so the solution to this problem is to be good. How do you get God to bless you? By manipulating him through your obedience. Now let that simmer for a minute. It's called religion. Now, there is a good form of religion, but there's a bad form. The bad form of religion is manipulating God through your obedience. And I don't know if you've read the story of the prodigal sons. There's two of them. And it's Luke 15, and one son was lost in the stuff we all know we're lost in. Because you know when you're getting drunk and you're sleeping around, you're partying, you know. You, you kind of, I mean, you may not know you're lost entirely, but you're, you know something's wrong. My mama didn't teach me how to live this way. But there's another way to be lost. It's to be lost in your obedience. To be lost in your obedience. That was the older brother. He was obeying God, but he didn't love God. And see, he wasn't obeying God for God. And that's what he's addressing. Don't be overly righteous. Meaning, don't think that your righteousness is a way of manipulating God to get what you want. That's not about God. Church, that's about you. And that's where churches go wrong is where we think our obedience somehow can manipulate God to bless us and we're not worshiping God for God because what's the first command we talked about when everyone came up here to love God and to love your neighbor. Now, if you love someone simply for what they can give you, hey, that's not really just true deep love. Now, it may start there. I think all relationships kind of start there. I mean, she looks good, he looks good. I mean, he's got a job, that's helpful. So listen, there's, there's a little bit of reciprocation in help. I mean, that's, that's, I don't, that's okay. But if the relationship matures, can it stay there? No, and that's what the gospel's about. It's about causing us to love God for who God is. And he's, he's speaking and he's saying, listen, there's some righteousness. It's not right. I mean, it's not, it's not right. And if you know this, the Sermon on the Mount's all about that. The Sermon on the Mount is not about God wanting good boys and girls. Now, the world is better with good boys and girls, get me. But see, what Jesus, what God is after, what he's talking about and what he's kind of uncovering is God is after the motives, the loves, the worship of the heart. And that's what he's describing. But see, here's, here's the problem. And the problem is in verse 20 is he's looking out the world and he's trying to figure out, okay, why are these good people dying? Why are these wicked people prolonging their life? He came to this revelation in verse 20 and watch what he says. Hey, as I'm looking out at this situation, surely there is not a righteous man on earth. There's not a righteous man on earth that never does, that, who does good and never sins. There's a universality to sin that as he's looking out at life, he realizes what he sees in others is really also in him. Now, to draw that out, you sometimes need a story. And so the next verse is a story to draw out the truth of what he's saying. So test yourself on this. Has this happened to you? I mean, this first statement, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Come on now. I'm speaking to somebody right there. Do not take to heart everything people say, because here's what's going to happen. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Yet here's somebody that's talking about me, and if they're talking about me, and they're saying things about me, my heart starts to get kind of in an uproar, and I start to characterize them by what they're doing to me, and I start getting angry at them. And what that does is it creates a self-righteousness in me. I don't know, when some people sin against you, it's, it creates self-righteousness. I wouldn't do that. Really? Now, you may not have done that. Listen, there is something. You may not have done that, but the wickedness that drives it is also in you. Isn't that what Jesus said? 
Hey, listen, I never committed adultery like that guy. Really? Jesus said, I'm not just so concerned about keeping you in the right bed. I'm concerned about keeping your heart in the right worship. You know, I've never murdered somebody, but have you allowed hatred to dwell in your heart? See, he's taken us to a deeper place. So he says in verse 22, your heart knows, your heart knows, you know this. You know that many times you yourself have cursed others. You have done the same thing. When you read Romans 1, Romans 1 is the gospel to the unbelieving world, to the pagan. You need to go home and read Romans chapter two, verse one. It will turn your world around because that's the gospel to the religious. And he says, hey, listen, you religious guys, you who judge others, don't you do the same thing? I know you're not sleeping around. I know you're not drinking, but you have a self-righteousness in your heart that is just as putrid and just as broken. You're just not showing it the same way they are. I mean, he's getting honest. As he's looking out at the world, he's saying, God desires a deeper kind of righteousness. That's not just surface, but it goes down to the worship of the heart. So he goes on to say in verse, and we're gonna jump back to verse 19. We're gonna kind of jump around. He says, wisdom will help you. Now, as you look out in a world that is where the good die young and the wicked prosper, he's saying, wisdom will give you strength. Verse 19, it'll give you strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And that's just simply a proverb to say, gather the 10 best people in some kind of sector of life into a room and you've got some strength. The 10 best economists, the 10 best doctors, whatever it is, whatever you're trying to deal with, wisdom is like that. When you bring wisdom into your life, you don't say as many dumb things. Be quick to listen. You know this, slow to speak, slow to become angry. It also helps you to make good decisions with your behavior, with your thought life. Wisdom will save you, but it won't make you righteous. What he's gonna tell us is part of wisdom is wisdom has limits. And he's gonna go on and say that wisdom was good, but watch verse 23. I've tested everything in life. I tried to figure everything out with wisdom and I said, I'm gonna do it. First guy right here, I'm going to be wise. Notice verse 23, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, meaning history and life, it's hard to understand. It's deep, it's very deep. Who can find it out? If he's trying to crack life with wisdom, he says, wisdom's just not enough. Because see, Paul said, I try to do good stuff, and what happens? I don't do it. I do the stuff I don't wanna do, and then when I'm doing the stuff I don't wanna do, I'm thinking about stuff I should do, but then he says, it's not I, but sin at work within me. Now, he's not getting off the hook. He's just saying, I know I got a problem. And it's a problem, church. What he's addressing is a problem you can't change just by good behavior just by good behavior. It's a problem that God has to address. And so here's the path that he takes. And I've, I've got to warn you, some of his words may be a little confusing, but I'll explain it. Watch this, verse 25. He said, I turn in my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of men. So I tested life. I tested wisdom. I tested pleasure. I tested it all. And here's what I found. I found something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is a snare and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken captive by her. Women, women, just calm down, okay. It's okay. Let me explain what he's saying. In wisdom literature, wickedness is often personified as a woman. It's called the harlot. But listen, Israel was called the harlot. So this is not a man or woman thing, but realize 
Though wisdom is person, I mean, wickedness is personified as a woman. Do you know what wisdom was also personified as a woman? So it's 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 kind of equal. Proverbs thirty one. I don't think that's a literal woman. I think he's describing wisdom, which men you should pursue. And so what he's saying is when you give up on life and you say, I can't figure life out, life's not working out, I'm just gonna go off on my own, I'm not gonna trust God because I see all the suffering in the world, God's not good, and I can't figure it out, I'm just gonna give myself to wickedness. He said, listen, that woman will hold on to you, she will ensnare you, you will not be let go. Wickedness takes you someplace you never intended to be. Come on now. Wickedness, listen, that's the definition of being lost. Being lost is being someplace you never intended. Have you seen that in marriages? It's just a little sin, just a little temptation, just one white lie, just one night out, just a little bit of alcohol, just a little bit of pornography. And where did it lead? Where does it take you? Just a little bit of embezzlement, just a little bit of stealing, where does it take you? Just a little bit of pride in a religious heart, where does it take you? It takes you to a place you do not intend. It causes you to be lost. And he says, watch out, wickedness will hold on to you. And here's the problem. As I look out in the world, I don't see any righteous. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, meaning wisdom, to figure things out, to find the scheme of things. Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly. I'm trying to figure it out. I haven't found it. Now, one man I found among a thousand, but a woman among all of these I have not found. That's a figure of speech. Okay. I'm getting nervous up here. Because I love, I love, I love you, I love, love the women in the room. I'm, I'm just trying to preach this. Anyways, I'm getting nervous myself. It's a figure of speech. Now, listen, Solomon had a major issue with women. One of his problems is that he married a bunch of women who didn't worship God. That's on Solomon. And here's the beauty of that, how messed up Solomon was. And yet God worked in his life and loved him. I think we all have hope. I mean, there are no heroes in the Bible who are not named Jesus. David was a mess. Solomon was a mess. I'm a mess. I may have a hope. Peter was a mess. Paul was arrogant. I may have a hope. That's what he's pointing us to. And he says, verse 29, see, I found that God made man upright. Well, what's the problem? What's the problem? Us. We want to be in control. I want to be God. And listen, I want to be right. And I want to call out all the people who are wrong. You know what that is? It's actually envy. When somebody does something to you and it hurts, there's some envy in that in that you're thinking they're getting away with it. Did you hear me? You think they're getting away with it. You know what? Envy kills joy. It destroys life. It destroys what the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us is life is a gift from God. And when you think you're more righteous, called self-righteousness, and when you kind of think you're more righteous than others, and you look at the world, and you just kind of think, hey, I got it right, everybody did what I did, you know what that does? It creates envy, it provokes, and it sucks the joy out of life, because you can't see life as a gift. All you can do is compare yourself with others, and you see where everything's broken. And you can't go to the goodness of God, because God's the problem. I mean, God's the one who's at fault, so what do you do? It's verse 18, we skipped it. Is verse 18, he kind of gives us a hint. Here's what we gotta do. We've gotta get some perspective and elevation on life. He says, verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this, meaning righteousness, and from that not withhold your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. So he's saying there are extremes in life that we can give ourselves to righteousness as a way of manipulating God or we can just give up on the whole God thing. He's saying avoid those two things. How do you avoid them? 
Not by managing sin, church. Stop managing your sin. Can I say that? Stop managing your sin. Christianity is not about God helping us so that we can manage sin better. Christianity is about worship. How do you overcome sin? Worship. What's worship? It's perspective. It's elevation. Now, on Thursday, I guess in Colorado, you got fall break, right? Did I miss that? Was that? We, ha- we didn't have that last year, did we? You had COVID. So anyways, we're from Texas, so I'm kind of thinking fall break. So we had Thursday and Friday off. It's kind of cool. So I was like, okay, Nate and I went hiking. Staunton, is that what I call it? Staunton Park. Never been there before. Uh, it's not my favorite place. Anyways, you don't need a, a review on this. But we went to Staunton Park, did an 11-mile hike. Now, it was supposed to be nine, but we got confused. It got a little lost, took the wrong turn. Anyways, we did this hike, and if you've done this, we kind of did the part on Staunton Park where you kind of go over, and then you go up on those cliffs. You've been up there, beautiful. I mean, gorgeous views. And when I got up there, Nate and I were like, oh, look, there's our car. Well, that's cool. There's our car right there. And look, there's the trail that we took, and that's where we got lost. Remember, Dad? We got lost right there, and we're like, went the wrong way, and that added two miles that took us back. And then we're kind of looking over this way and kind of see how we, we can't see everything. We can't see every log and every stream we passed. And now we're here. And then as we're looking off this direction, we kind of see where that path's going. Now, we don't know what we're going to face. We don't know who's on the trail. We don't know what we're going to see, but we can kind of tell. You know what I mean? Life's going to kind of go this way, and it's going to take us back. Well, that's what worship does in life. It gives you perspective that when you're bitter and angry or you're afraid or worried or when you don't like what somebody else is doing, you gotta say, God, I gotta get my eyes off them and start putting them on on you. And when I start putting my eyes on God, it changes my perspective about God and about you and about myself. Because see, the righteousness that God wants from us is not just the righteousness of obedience, which is good. It's the righteousness that comes from a heart that's surrendered to God. It's the righteousness of worship. That over time, as we put God at the center and I start admitting that I need to get out of the center, God starts to sanctify and change us. If I stop blaming everybody else out there, whether it's the political world, the religious world, my neighbor, whoever it is, my mom, my sister, if I stop blaming people and I start allowing God to work on my heart, I may become the agent of change that I wanna see in everybody else. But how does that happen? By God changing the desires of the heart. What he's calling us to is a deeper righteousness. The problem is the human heart. And the only solution to it is to recognize we have to surrender ourselves to God and say, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil every single day. Why do we pray that? Because it's saying, I can't overcome, but Father, through you, I can. Do you know that? Every single day, He's saying we need to surrender and recognize God. As I go out into the world, I'm gonna face temptations, but lead me not there, Father. Help me to overcome. How do you do that? How do you do that? We're gonna close with this, Romans chapter eight, verse one. The questions the Old Testament asks, the New Testament answers. So watch this, Romans chapter eight. In Romans chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, is that because they perfectly obey? Because all their thought lives are together? Solomon had everything together? Paul had everything together? No. Why is it that when I stand before the Father today, even though last week when it may have been horrible and I'm a terrible husband, terrible father, terrible human being, why do I stand before God today without condemnation? Because see, in life, we think the good people get good stuff. The bad people get bad stuff. Well, the gospel says no. 
No, it's not the good people get good stuff and the bad people get bad stuff. It's the reality that all of us need to run to the one who is right, to the one who is good. That is Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus has done for us in verse two. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Now, I know it's a lot of theological language, but he's gonna explain it in verse three. Here's what he just said. For what God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, meaning weakened by Jason, because see, I couldn't obey everything God asked me to do. It was weakened by me, could not do. I couldn't fulfill all God's requirements. So what did he do? Did he give me what I deserved? Like we so often want to give to others, no. What did he do? He sent his son in the likeness of flesh for sin. And he condemns sin in Jesus. That my brokenness was condemned in Jesus. So that when the father welcomes me, he welcomes me as if I have done everything that Jesus had done. If you had done everything Jesus had done, how would you walk into heaven? I may be like, yeah, this is great. How would you pray? A lot different you're praying now. How would you live? You'd live in the Father's love because see, that's the good news of the gospel. God doesn't treat us according to what we deserve. God treats us according to what Jesus deserved. And you're like, we don't deserve that. Exactly, it's called grace. Grace is just, we don't get what we deserve, but we got what Christ deserves. And see, what changes the obedience of the heart, what changes the life is gratitude for the grandeur and the shock of what God has done for us. See, that's what he's saying, the fear of God. I need to get a higher elevation. I need to see things differently. I don't need to just compare myself to others. I don't need to just blame others in life. I don't need to be envious and simply get angry in my heart and be cut off from joy. I need to worship, and I need to worship the one that rescued me out of darkness and brought me into light and has given me a new heart and now has put people around me to love me and help me and follow Jesus in this life so that others may know the abundance of life that God offers us. What he's after is a change of the heart, church. And that's not just something we can generate, it's something we have to worship and we have to gather together in community to love one another, to forgive others and to see the goodness of the gospel that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And he gave his life for me and today God is pleased with me. Could you say that right now? God is pleased with me. Now if you, if you can't, it's because you're living in karma. Why is God pleased with you, church? One reason, because you belong to him. Listen, he may not be happy with your behavior, okay? Just like dad isn't, or mom isn't. But where is his pleasure based in? You are my chosen people, my royal priest, my chosen, my treasured possession. I have purchased you out of darkness into light. His pleasure is in the fact that you are his, just as when you have a child, and that child is rebellious, and he's driving you nuts, still love that child. And you would stop at nothing to see that child change and follow in a path of wisdom. And see, God has been willing to enter into our brokenness so that he may rescue us out. Do you see God's goodness? That's the goodness of the gospel. It's the goodness of grace. And it's the only goodness that doesn't allow us to live life in vengeance, but live life in mercy and grace and truth and forgiveness to others. It changes the world. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for a book like this that forces us uh, to wrestle below the surface. It forces us to deal with the challenges in life. And I, I wanna pray for those right now that are walking in that place 
of pain and suffering. Sometimes an argument like this or just a message like this, it's cold comfort. And that's why we have the Spirit. The Spirit has come so that we may know we are the children of God. And in Jesus' name, I ask, Spirit, that you would come on the hearts of those that need to know they are the children of God. That they need to know how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ. And they need to know this love that surpasses understanding. We need to know it by experience. Jesus, you came to make us the sons and the daughters of God's spirit. You caused us, you came to cause us to feel like children. And I pray for anyone here here today that's never cried out, Father, accept me on the basis of Jesus and Jesus alone. I recognize, Father, that I am rebellious. I've turned against you. I've sought my own way. I've wanted to be the center of life, and that is called sin. And Jesus, you've come into the world to bear my sin so that through faith in you, the Father might see me as forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, and out of gratitude for what he has done, the Spirit may change my heart to cause you to love you more and, Father, to love my neighbor as myself. Help us, Father, this week as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.